Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Impact Education Payer Talk CE program entitled Major Advances in the Management of Retinopathy of Prematurity. My name is Jeff Dunn, and I will be hosting the program today. I am the Chief Clinical Officer for Cooperative Benefits Group, a PBM based in Salt Lake City. This Payer Talk CE program is jointly provided by Medical Education Resources and Impact Education LLC, and it is designated for one half contact hour of continuing education credit. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, and we would very much like to thank them for their support of this program. I am joined today by Dr. Edward Wood. Dr. Wood is a board certified and fellowship trained vitreoretinal surgeon expert in the management of all diseases of the retina and vitreous in both adults and children. Welcome, Dr. Wood. It's great to be here. So I was really looking forward to speaking with you, especially today, because it happens to be Children's Eye Health Month, which highlights the importance of protecting children's vision and eye health. Vision obviously plays a super important role in a child's physical, mental, and social development. Can you tell our audience about your work and some of the health burdens of retinopathy of prematurity? Definitely. So just as an introduction to myself, I see patients with retinal disease, the disease affecting the inner lining of the eye. It's neural tissue, brain-related tissue that initially collects light and sends that information to the brain to create vision. And children, especially premature children, can develop a very unique condition that affects the retina. And that's called retinopathy of prematurity. It's a potentially blinding disorder that affects premature infants. Those infants that are at risk are thought to be less than 1500 grams of birth weight or less than 30 to 32 weeks of gestational age. Now a full term gestation is roughly 38 to 42 weeks of gestational age. And smaller babies are at risk for developing this eye condition. Essentially what happens in this condition is that when the baby is in utero, the retina that's developing is exposed to just the right amount of oxygen. But if the baby's born prematurely, then the lungs aren't fully developed. The baby has to be given oxygen externally through a nasal cannula or other forms of oxygen in order to give the baby all of the proper nutrients that it needs to keep growing and surviving. That actually exposes the retina that's still developing, because the baby's premature, to higher oxygen levels than it needs. And that sort of tricks the retina into thinking that it doesn't need to grow any more blood vessels. So the retina goes into this state where the blood vessels sort of stop growing. As the baby gets a little bit larger, abnormal blood vessels can sometimes grow as the need for oxygen starts to outpace the supply because the baby hasn't grown all of the necessary blood vessel infrastructure that it needs. And so that's when we can get the disease in retinopathy of prematurity. This condition can affect babies, as we said, less than 30 weeks or less than 1,500 grams. Um, and the younger and the smaller the baby, the higher the risk of disease. Left untreated, this disease, if it does require treatment and we don't treat it, then it would almost unanimously cause permanent vision loss, including blindness in both eyes. So it's one of the more common forms of visual loss in childhood, and it can lead to long-term visual impairment and blindness. 
there are about 4 million infants in the U.S. born each year, and about 14,000 are affected by ROP. Most of those, around 90%, have only mild disease, and around 1,100 to 1,500 a year develop disease severe enough to require medical treatment. A smaller number become legally blind from ROP, around 400 to 500 per year. But our goal is to really identify them early and prevent vision loss wherever possible. That was super helpful. And there's a lot to unpack there. So what I take home from that is this is extremely rare. Is it safe to say that the primary risk factor is just prematurity and low birth weight? And then I guess my questions are, is this a normal part of screening in premature babies? And because it is so rare, first of all, how do you diagnose it? And then how do you decide to treat it? So in if mild disease, are you treating those or are you only treating severe patients? All really, really good questions. So first of all, is it very rare? Well, we see a part of screening that's mandated by the American Academy of Pediatrics and also American Academy of Ophthalmology. We've come together to define screening guidelines. So it's a part of routine screening for almost any baby that's born less than 30 to 32 weeks of gestational age or any baby born less than 1,500 grams receives a series of eye exams to determine the existence or type of retinopathy or prematurity. So, you know, there's a lot of premature babies born every year. And so it really isn't an extremely rare disease. I would not classify it as a rare disease. Now, it's rare that the babies need treatment. Um, we know that after looking at all of our data, about 8 to 10% of all babies screened need treatment for ROP. So it's not common to need treatment, but it is something that, uh, you know, is a risk for a larger number of patients. And that would be prematurity. You asked about other risk factors. There certainly are other risk factors that usually dovetail with prematurity, including uh, delayed weight gain is one. People have looked at other factors like insulin-like growth factor and many other possible variables, but really the main ones that we keep returning to are birth weight and gestational age. And it's really a developmental condition. So it makes sense that those are the main risk factors. In terms of mild versus severe and when we're getting involved, there's many different stages of disease. I think we can go into that as well. But earlier stages of disease almost always improve on their own. However, later, more advanced stages of disease do require treatment. And um, we can talk about those treatments a little bit as well. So most of the time when we're seeing a baby, if they have mild disease, we would re-examine them and many times it would improve on its own. But if it would get worse, we would need to treat. Those visits, those exams are either performed by an in-person dilated eye exam where the ophthalmologist or screener is going to the NICUs and examining individual babies. That's what we do uh, every week. And we examine their eyes, we write down what we see, and we re-examine them accordingly. And when they need treatment, we treat them right there in the NICU. Sometimes that screening can be done via telemedicine, where we have a camera that's portable that takes photos of the baby's eyes. We interpret them remotely and determine examinations and treatments from there. That's super helpful. So as a payer, I've, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years, and I do want to ask you about medications in a minute. But we're used to the, you know, dealing with those medications and managing those medications more so in the Medicare population and the elderly for other conditions. I honestly didn't have any idea that this was a, a commonly screened for disorder 
and uh, was that common. So that is, I think that's that's going to be very interesting for payers to kind of revisit this. But so you mentioned, uh, you know, how you treat and when this happens typically. So I'm assuming you're interacting a lot with the parents for obvious reasons, but how, you know, they're probably going to be stressed about a lot of different things, you know, with premature babies and everything else that's going on with, with these babies. I mean, what, what does that typical conversation look like and how do you address the need for treatment with them? That's a great question. It's a very vulnerable time for parents because many of these children have concomitant disease, other preterm associated diseases, whether that be lung conditions like bronchopulmonary dysplasia or heart conditions or possibly intestinal conditions like necrotizing enterocolitis. So prematurity is a whole body phenomenon that can affect the body and different organ systems in different ways. So we are one part of a dynamic team in the NICU. And so many times the parents are there, but the parents aren't always, you know, at the bedside 24-7 for these babies. And we round on them um, at different times. So we hope to link up with them to the best of our ability. Many times the parents are not present and we're seeing the baby communicating the findings to the neonatologist to the neonatology team, and then taking the extra time to really call the parents and chat with them if they're not present about how their baby's doing, especially if they're having worsening disease. So interacting with the parents, we always want to be just thoughtful and considerate because they're going through a challenging time with their new child. But if we're just screening, meaning if we're just examining them and they have early disease that's not requiring treatment or if they have no disease, at that point, the conversation's fairly easy. It's just that we're going to examine them in about one to two weeks, again, depending on how their eye looks, and see where they're going. Likely, their blood vessels are developing normally. Everything's looking good. However, if the baby's getting worse or the disease is advancing, if it's nearing treatment, then that conversation is a little bit different. And that's when we start to talk about the possibility of treatment. There are different ways we can treat these babies. There are two main ways in which we treat these children. The one way that was kind of the gold standard for many years is with laser therapy. And that's done either at the bedside in the NICU or it's done in an operating room under anesthesia. And that's when we apply laser therapy using a special directed headset in order to essentially quiet down the demand for oxygen because the retina that doesn't have blood vessels in it is sort of sick and it's it's asking for more oxygen it's asking for more blood vessels that signal drives the growth of new abnormal blood vessels that aren't really helping those abnormal blood vessels are really the culprit for disease vision loss they can cause retinal detachment bleeding scar tissue so we really want to treat when we start to see the growth of these abnormal blood vessels. And by doing laser, we essentially quiet down the signal that's driving the growth of these abnormal blood vessels. The other way to do that is with an injection of a medicine. And just as you alluded to, this is a class of medications that's predominantly used in an older population of folks with retinal disease, namely macular degeneration and diabetic retinopathy that are anti-vascular endothelial growth factor agents or anti-VEGF agents. We use them in a smaller concentration in an infant's eye where we typically perform this injection 
using a very small needle at the bedside when they're in the NICU so the baby doesn't have to move. And very often that is very efficacious in reducing the growth of these abnormal blood vessels. So when the baby's getting worse, we really start to talk about these types of things with the parents, possible treatments, and the path moving forward. So a few follow-up questions, if that's okay. So it sounds to me like this is super time sensitive. So you need to get treatment going um, as early as possible, or you run the risk of long-term vision issues. Is that safe to say? I mean, is it, is it super time sensitive? That is a great point. I'm glad you brought that up and highlighted that because timing is the most important part of this condition. It is extremely time sensitive. Because it's a developmental condition, ROP, a retinopathy of prematurity, interesting disease and in that it follows a fairly predictable pattern where when the baby's first born, it's very unlikely for them to have any disease. However, the peak incidence of the disease getting worse is around 35 to 37 weeks of postmenstrual age. And why is it usually around that time? It's usually around that time because that's when the baby is getting bigger and the tissues are developing and having a higher demand for oxygen. So it's sort of the sweet spot for disease where the demand, it starts to outstrip the supply. And when we see the baby and decide the treatment's necessary, it's very critical that treatment is initiated within 48, 72 hours, um, but usually the sooner the better. Thank you. And so how do you decide between an anti-VEGF and laser therapy? So that is a very big topic of conversation, even in our field, even amongst those who see retinopathy and prematurity on a very high level. Even at our national meetings, we still have debates, if you will, about that. So some providers prefer laser. Some providers prefer treating with the injection. There have been a lot of studies now that have been looking at the injections, the intravitreal anti-VEGF therapy injections. And there's been a trend in these studies towards babies that have so-called more posterior disease, meaning they have less mature blood vessel growth. The blood vessels really haven't grown very much at all. And these are typically smaller babies, babies that are of much lower gestational age and birth weight. And there's been a trend in the clinical trials towards that cohort of patients having possibly improved outcomes with the injection therapy. That's likely because they are just, the eye is just so immature that there's a high level of demand for oxygen. And the medicine really stops the growth of these abnormal blood vessels very quickly. Whereas the laser is very efficacious, but it can sometimes take a little longer to take effect, right? Like we know with pharmacotherapy, it's usually a fairly quick effect. So, however, if the infant's older, and let's say the blood vessels are more mature, and there is some disease developing, then that child is more likely to do well with the laser treatment. There's a lot of nuances there. And, you know, it's a topic of conversation that I think is learned even as a provider through many years of practice and talking to other providers. And there's also individual practice patterns. So the one thing to know about the injection is, is that like other medicines, this injection, it does halt the growth of these abnormal blood vessels very successfully, but oftentimes the normal blood vessels don't fully grow or develop all the way to the end of the retina. 
So many times after the injection, we're still talking about performing laser therapy when the baby's older and perhaps can do that as an outpatient. So I think it's a larger conversation, but hopefully that provides a window into some of the decisions that we're making around injection versus laser. Perfect. So actually, that made me think of a couple follow-up questions. First is one of the uh, anti-VEGF Flibercept is now approved for ROP, I believe. But we have, you know, generic off-label bevacizumab that's used commonly and preferred by a lot of payers. But what is kind of the go-to anti-VEGF if there is one? And does the, and is, is it now a Flibercept because of the uh, FDA approval? That's a great point. That's a recent development. A Flibercept is now the only FDA-approved anti-VEGF therapy to treat ROP. We did do a clinical trial called the Rainbow Study that was a international study and Ranibizumab is approved by the European medical community for the treatment of ROP, which trade name as Lucentis, but Ranibizumab. And so that is a medication that some folks use as well for ROP. And then the other, you mentioned Bevacizumab or Avastin, which is very commonly used off-label for the treatment of ROP. You know, I think it's a new development, given that the FDA has now approved a Flibercept. And one of the considerations in treating anti-VEGF therapy in ROP is the systemic exposure of the drug. So we know these babies are developing. We know that there's a lot that's still going on in their bodies in terms of vascular development. And there is a thought amongst many providers that treating in the eye with this medicine, the medicine does travel throughout the body and it gets to other areas. And maybe blocking VEGF or blocking vascular endothelial growth factor, which helps grow and support developing blood vessels, maybe that's not a great thing for small babies to be exposed to on a high level. People have done studies to look at so-called neurodevelopmental outcomes of children receiving anti-VEGF therapy. And that's another large topic of debate in our field, but there hasn't been a strong consensus that the therapy definitely results in adverse neurodevelopmental outcomes. That being said, I think we all would like to limit the systemic exposure of this medication, if at all possible, right? It would be ideal if it just worked in the eye and didn't really travel throughout the rest of the body. Bevacizumab, which is medication that has the lowest cost typically and is used off-label for ROP, and that's one of the reasons why it's a you know preferred drug amongst many hospital systems is the cost. It does have a higher systemic exposure, uh, meaning the half-life is longer. So it does stick around the body a little longer. It does stay in the bloodstream a little longer and very likely reach other areas of the body, whereas a flibercept and ranibizumab have shorter half-lives. So I think that's one area that, you know, I think inspires the use of those more branded anti-VEGF therapies. And like you said, now that a Flibercept is approved by the U.S. FDA, I think that'll be something to really pay attention to, especially now that it has that full approval. We did participate in that clinical trial as well. So we have experience with all three of those uh, drugs. That's super helpful. And actually what you kind of finished with at the end was, was my second question. And that is, you know, I think payers are very familiar with these, again, in the elderly population and how they're dosed, but we have options now, anti-VEGFs that are dosed every one to four months, I believe. And so we're kind of used to dealing with that. Um, but how are, how are these things dosed in this population? Is it, you know, how often and for how long? 
Great question. It's usually a one-time administration. Rarely will we need to administer it twice. That's if the disease has recurred and and we're not thinking laser is a great option. Um, So almost always, I would say in well over 90% of cases, it's time administration of the therapy. Okay. That's super helpful to a payer. So actually, I kind of want to wrap up. Unfortunately, we're getting near our time and I want to save some time for for questions, but it's uh, really putting my payer hat on. Do you as a practicing physician who are treating these kids, do you have issues with access, you know, payer access or any insurance issues? And the second part of that question is, you know, you have payers listening to this. What would you tell them? I would tell them that this is not a condition where we want to consider delay of treatment. It's not a condition where we can think about considering the possibility for authorization. This is a condition that if the child needs treatment and isn't treated even for several days, they can have permanent blindness in both eyes for life. And so the treatment itself for a lifetime of vision is the cost of that treatment is really minuscule compared to a lifetime of vision in both eyes. And that's really what we're doing when we're seeing ROP. We're really trying to get these kids through this vulnerable period so that they can have a lifetime of useful vision in both eyes. And so the costs are just minuscule compared to the societal costs of resulting blindness, the impact of disability, the economic burden, the personal burden. And really the incidence of ROP is increasing. You know, the overall incidence has, has doubled from 2003 to 2019 in premature infants. So we were probably going to be seeing more of this. And I think for payers, it's just, it's, you know, it's not an ongoing treatment. It's very likely a one-time treatment. It's very likely a one-time treatment that will save a baby's vision permanently for their entire life. So I think in whatever way we can improve access, we're all going to reap the benefits from that uh, as healthcare providers, as peers, and as a society. Are you seeing barriers from insurance companies? I think that there are barriers whenever we're talking about using higher cost medications um, in every area. And given that aflibercept is a brand new sort of FDA approved medication, just to be completely honest with you, I don't think we've had enough time to really feel and experience the barriers, if you know what I mean. We haven't used it to the capacity to which we would start to see those arise because currently many folks in the U.S. are still using, you know, off-label bevacizumab. But anytime in our field when we're moving from off-label bevacizumab to aflibercept or ranibizumab, we very commonly experience barriers to using a higher cost medication. And I think I anticipate it here, but I don't think we've had the time to really see it because it's, you know, it's only been FDA approved for a very short period of time. I want to thank you. Uh, I've learned a lot listening to you, and I think you summarized it very well. But how I would summarize it to my pair colleagues is that there is screening for this, which is great, but we need to make sure that uh, we are looking at that screening. We need to evaluate whether or not we're putting in place inappropriate or artificial barriers. And one of the key points to me was that this is dosed one time and it has to be done very quickly. And I just want to point out again that these drugs are relatively inexpensive, especially if we're dosing it once. And so, you know, if we look at that versus the clinical consequences of potentially impacting somebody's vision, you know, this is something we need to pay attention to. And if we do have bevacizumab steps, 
uh, which are probably applicable because of, of what we do in uh, DR and, and macular degeneration, we probably need to reevaluate in this population. And it's not going to be a budget buster, and it's the right thing to do. So I've learned a lot. And again, I, I appreciate your comments, Dr. Wood. And I would now like to open the discussion to our audience for some questions. And it looks like we've had some questions come in. So thank you very much for submitting those. So I'll just jump right in. Dr. Wood, uh, the first question is, how much time typically elapses before untreated ROP advances to vision loss? Great question. So um, the indication for treatment is defined as type 1 ETROP. So there's a very formal and programmatic definition for what treatment requiring ROP is. And what that is, is it's a certain type of disease called stage three, where you get the growth of new abnormal blood vessels. And it's it's also the presence of plus disease, which is where the blood vessels become dilated or enlarged and tortuous or more, um, more squiggly in how they appear. So they become more dilated and tortuous. Those two things are the main indicators of treatment. When we do see those features, we know we need to treat within 48 hours. Sometimes 72 hours is reasonable, but treatment should not be delayed past that. Perfect. The next question I think is interesting in that basically, is there a point of no return? So the question is, um, at what point or is there a point where the disease progresses where it can no longer be effectively treated? Yeah, that happens rarely. Um, sometimes the disease continues to progress despite our best efforts at treating it. If the baby's very small, if the disease is very, very aggressive, we're applying treatments appropriately, but the disease continues to progress. That happens very rarely. Other times um, we're seeing babies that sometimes were treated perhaps a little later than advisable and then we start to get the growth of scar tissue that results in a retinal detachment. That can no longer be treated with medical therapies or laser that requires incisional retina surgery, which is something that we do um, not commonly for ROP, but it is something that we do as a sort of a, a backup plan to try to save whatever vision possible. When we are talking about retinal detachment requiring surgery, we're talking about preserving you know, some level of, of useful vision, but there will be some level of vision loss. So again, as early as possible. Right. That's right. As early as possible, when the treatment's needed, we need to move quickly, usually within a day or two. Um, and if we delay and, and we're caught or if the baby's trying to transfer, or we're waiting on approval, then that's when these babies can get into trouble and we're not really able to get back to where we could have been. All right. Now, we're running up against time, but I want to maybe squeeze in a couple last questions here. One is, can you kind of reiterate the uh, treatment or the decision that goes into deciding between an anti-VEGF and laser photocoagulation? Definitely. A part of it is practice patterns. Um, we all know that providers prefer certain treatment over other providers. That's just something that happens all across medicine in every field. So that's a piece of it. But in general, I think the smaller the baby um, with less developed blood vessels, more folks might trend towards using the injection anti-VEGF therapy, whereas larger babies with much more developed blood vessels, folks might tend a little bit more towards using laser, but there is considerable overlap. Perfect. And the last one, we, we kind of talked about therapeutic response uh, in the earlier on. What do we mean by that? I mean, how would you define what a good therapeutic response is? 
It is the regression of those abnormal blood vessels, usually stage three. That's the new blood vessels growing that are abnormal. And then the regression of what's called plus disease, that dilation and tortuosity of the blood vessels in the eye. So we can see those things visually, ophthalmoscopically. We also know that untreated, the disease is going to continue to progress. So we see improvement, we see stabilization and the regression of abnormal features in the eye. Perfect. I wish I could ask you more questions, but unfortunately, uh, we do need to conclude the webcast. I would like to thank you very much for your presentations and answers to the questions. I would also like to take one more opportunity to thank uh, Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated for their support of this activity. So that concludes today's webcast. For other continuing education activities, if you are interested, please visit Impact Education's website, Managed Care Eye, that's E Y E, managedcareeye.com. <laughs>